You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Sing countdown engines on Three, two, check ignition and may God's love be with you. I am as a light. Hi, and welcome to episode three hundred eleven of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Uh, I, I, You know, still, after a year and a half of not being an academic, I still have to stop myself from saying I'm a professor, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but anyway, uh, joining me today is David Grubbs, who is still a professor, an assistant professor, anyway, of English at Houston Baptist University. Grubbs, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, today was uh, our, our first day of some form of in-person classes. We were remote for the first two weeks of the semester. So um, it was kind of nice to, you know, see other people on the other side of the room, or at least, you know, the area north of, you know, the mask. Is your school providing uh, shots for you? Um, in Texas, I don't know that I've reached the um, priority threshold yet. My understanding is Texas is actually doing pretty well at distributing the vaccines, unlike Georgia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I, I, ha- I haven't really kept up with it. Um, you know, mostly I've just kind of figured um, my 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 physician and my insurance have both sent emails saying we'll let you know yeah. when when your category comes up. So. Mine too. I'm, I, I have a doctor's appointment in the morning now, and I'm hoping that I'll go in and they'll be like, oh, so do you want a shot too while you're here, like they do with the flu shot? Uh, <laughs> I don't think they're going to do that. It'd be nice though. It would be uh, Also joining us from uh, a much more technocratic country, uh, I, I guess, uh, Matthew Block, who's, uh, who, as you, if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, you know is our... Temporary substitute for Nathan Gilmore. Matthew is the, I should have written this down, Matthew. You're the editor of the uh, Canadian Lutheran magazine, is that right? That's correct. And you live in Swan River, Manitoba. Yep, you got it right. Great. How is the vaccine rollout going in, uh, uh, in the socialist north? <laughs> Slowly. Um, we don't have any vaccine production facilities in Canada itself which means we're dependent on other nations. Oh. So the the vaccination rates have suddenly just slowed to a trickle of the last little while. My wife, uh, she's a physician, so she's gotten vaccinated, or at least her first shot so far, but uh, most other people are finding it difficult to get vaccines right now. For some reason, it makes me feel a little better that Canada is also having trouble, although they're having trouble not because they're completely screwing up the rollout, but because they don't have access to the vaccines to begin with. Yeah. Still. <laughs> well, our topic today um, has something to do with needles, I suppose. We're going to be talking about two <laughs> David Bowie songs, 1969's Space Oddity and 1980's Ashes to Ashes. And if you've heard Ashes to Ashes, you know that it's a sequel of sorts to Space Oddity. So it makes some sense that we're putting it together. Uh, our, our listeners are going to have at least some passing familiarity with David Bowie, I suspect. So I don't think we're going to have to write a full biography of him here. But, uh, Matthew, what are the broad strokes of his career at the time that he released Space Oddity in 1969? And where does it fit into his overall catalog? So prior to the release of Space Oddity, it's kind of fair to say that David Bowie or David Robert Jones, as he was known when he was born, uh, he wasn't really very well known at all. But that's not for lack of trying. While he was still a teenager in, in the early 60s, he started a band called the Conrads. But when the other band members didn't really seem particularly interested in 
going anywhere. He quit that, joined a different band called the King Bees, um, playing blues. Uh, they released Bowie's first single uh, under the name Davy Jones at the time, or David Jones, I think. But the song was mostly ignored. So he quit that band, joined another band called the Manish Boys, again, blues. Uh, another single later, No Better Response. He quits that band and joins a third band, uh, appropriately called The Lower Third, where he releases his third single, which is, and I'm not joking, it's called You've Got a Habit of Leaving. And uh, true to that song's title, he left it, joined another band. <laughs> uh, so he, he joined another band. And uh, but they didn't release anything. He changes his stage name to David Bowie after The Knife. And then finally, in 67, releases his first album. And it's it's a weird mixture of genres, to put it mildly. Uh, one of the pieces on it is called The Laughing Gnome. And in it, he's he's talking with this chipmunks esque voiced character. And one of the lines is, ha, 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 he, he, he. I'm a laughing gnome and you can't catch me. Surprisingly, this did not set the world on fire. Oh, man. And, and so when this this uh, this album doesn't go anywhere, he he's released from his label. He joins a folk rock band that doesn't release anything. And he ends up doing theater and mime work for a while. And basically, if you look at Bowie's work prior to Space Oddity, you see someone throwing all sorts of stuff at the wall just hoping to see if something sticks but none of it does uh, so if you're more familiar with Bowie's more famous work like the Ziggy Stardust persona and things like that you're not going to find much uh, pre-Space Oddity that you're going to be really interested in yeah Space Oddity is kind of where he finds his voice and it's, it's funny I mean and we'll talk about this in just a minute but it's funny that you would say that uh, he's throwing all this stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks because to, to me, I mean, Space Oddity itself feels like throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and it all just kind of sticks magnificently, miraculously. And you get this, uh, you get this really, uh, um, iconic song. I, I mean, this is probably the song that if you know anything by David Bowie, you know this one, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. And you guys, I assume, knew this going in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Space Oddity, I knew. I mean, I feel like we see some things like uh, the mime work makes a lot of sense <laughs> David, uh, in in the sense that David Bowie is an artist who I think is in constant control of his face and his body mm -hmm. um, as part of the as part of the performance, um, and that uh, I, I I really love that that sketch of of uh, Bio Matthew because if anyone is is willing to just say, oh, you don't like this anymore? Well, let's just do something completely different. It's David Bowie. Um, like His career almost takes all of the edge out of Spinal Tap's parody. <laughs> all right. Like, he, he's, he's going beyond the parody, really. Because he reinvents uh, himself every couple albums. Just a total oh, yeah. reinvention. Yeah, just just completely just complete reboot, um, and of course he had to go by David Bowie because Davy Jones was taken. <laughs> yeah, Davy Jones <laughs> is the uh, the kind of elfin uh, drummer and lead singer of the Monkees. Yes, so yeah, I mean he had to do something else, but uh, I mean David Bowie is I mean, this is a pretty amazing name. I mean for for people in my generation though, we probably were first introduced to him as the Goblin King and Labyrinth. Yes, I think that's um, probably accurate. Um, and had to me. learn later on why it was that our parents were um, perhaps a little bit leery of David Bowie in Labyrinth. Um, and and I think that's what we're digging into today. You, you know, I've never seen Labyrinth. I mean, I know that he's in it, and I really? know I know that I know that it, he, his performance is kind of weirdly sexual, but I've never actually seen the movie. Oh, it, it's worth watching. It's very good. Yes. Is he good in it? Oh yeah. I think I think so. I I, I, I love David Bowie as an actor. I, I think he was I, th I think he was he was really good on screen. And there's a kind of acting component to his music. I think you were getting at that when you talk about his mime work making perfect. Yes. I mean, if there is a rock star, you can imagine 
being a professional mime, it's David Bowie because everything he does is so theatrical. He, he he does feel very in control of everything at all times, and and when that works, it works really well, and when it stops working, it really stops working. But uh, I mean, David Bowie's notable for having a five decade career, of which uh, three and a half decades is really well respected. Yeah, well, and. I didn't know this until I was kind of on YouTube sort of, you know, looking about, but there was actually a, you know, there, there was a video of space oddity made just a couple of years after the release of the album when he's a no one. So he was a very early adopter of this sort of national music video, uh, genre and was always on the edge of it. Um, kind of pushing that medium as far as he possibly could. He also makes a video for it in 1979. And I, I, I figure he does that because he knows he's about to record Ashes to Ashes and he wants to mm. he wants to put them off against each other, which which he does. So he uses the same set to make the Ashes, Ashes to Ashes video. But we'll get to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, normally I throw the what does this sound like question to Nathan, but he's not here. So, David, it's falling on you this time. There is a lot going on in Space Oddity, musically speaking. <laughs> Um, can you try to parse some of it out? Well, uh, the the throwing things against the wall and it works beautifully, that, that kind of nicely sums it up. Um, so the beginning, there is uh, some, some major shifts. Uh, the first major shift is between the countdown and the launch. Um, the countdown, which, you know, there is a, a voice counting down in the background, um, uh, as the astronaut is being given orders about what to do in preparation for liftoff, um, there is this kind of military drum cadence playing and uh, just everything that music could do in order to create tension and a sense of foreboding. Um, but then there is the launch, and it's successful, and it, it the key shifts, I believe, and then it's just jubilation. Um, for the successful launch. You've made the grade, Major Tom. And uh, as we are in that um, in that phase of the song, um, the the speaker, the 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 the, pers- uh, the persona that's speaking within the song shifts from ground control to Major Tom, um, who is reporting, you know, what things look like in space, and you've still got this this jubilant this jubilant phase of the song that is still recognizably musically connected to the first half, um, in its kind of minor more minor tension. But then there is this another sudden shift um, when when he you know starts singing about how he's sitting in a tin can. And it becomes meditative. It, you know, the 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 tempo completely changes. It's a completely different melody. Um, the instrument, uh, the instrumentation becomes um, almost ecstatic uh, in a kind of way. And then it leads to this instrumental interlude, which has a lot of um, what I think of as '70s strings, but it's not the '70s yet. Right, and I, th- I think the reason you read those as, as 70 strings is that they were arranged and conducted by Paul Buckmaster, who is like the conductor of 1970s uh, Baroque pop music. Uh, most famously, I mean, besides this, most famously he did uh, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Okay. So if it, yeah. if it feels 70s to you, there's a really good reason for that. Nice. So the instrumental interlude is there. Um there's a resumption of the normal melody. The strings continue, um, but then as the the, the signal um, is lost communicating to Major Tom, it shifts back into that meditative phase again in another instrumental phase. Um, so those are the three kind of um, what I see as the main musical um, uh, the musical stages of the song. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what 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 about the instrumentation? There's guitar, there's strings, there's um, I, I don't know who's who's responsible for the instrumentation that we're hearing. 
Um, sometimes Bowie is singing a solo voice. Sometimes um, I think I th- is it is it him singing back up to himself? It is. Yes, he's multi-tracking yeah. himself, as he'll do again yeah. on Ashes to Ashes and many other songs. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes you've got the multi-tracking. Sometimes it's just his his single lonely voice. Um, but at every minute. At at every moment, whatever is happening, um, sort of narratively, is uh, pretty perfectly complemented by what is happening musically. It's it's you know if if you're going to debut with something that is as well kind of as well conceived and executed and engineered. I mean this is this is a pretty amazing this is a pretty amazing kind of intro into the. Uh, into the into the view of of, of the public uh, after so many failures. <laughs> yeah, we uh, well, and that, that's a thing to keep in mind because we think of we think of him as breaking through with this song, but I, I think a lot of people don't realize how long he worked before this came out. Like how many failures he had. We think of these new artists just kind of bursting on the scene, but they're always bursting from somewhere. They usually are. Matthew, what yeah. would you add about the way the the record sounds? Um, I would say maybe. Uh... It might be a little strange, but the the actual takeoff where we have that rising um, shift in the music, or, or it, it reminds me kind of of the opening to Star Trek the original series, the theme uh-huh. music. Not because uh, it's similar music; it's not similar styles of music, but that that uh, that rising uh, note, that increase in volume, that movement to a crescendo before the ship takes off, or or successfully hits its velocity um there's the same kind of thing going on in the original series opening theme you get that uh the uh bold to boldly go narration but the music suddenly has this rise crescendo and then the ship warps across the screen so it just it struck me that they were similar kind of ways of expressing the the movement of the ship uh one other little thing i might notice is just that uh at the very end of the song we have all of these kind of um, rising notes that start to dissolve at length into chaos. Uh, they become random notes rather than an increasing um, in key. And I think that loss of structure at the very end kind of imitates the loss of the ship to the void of space. But those are just some small things. Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and you, you get that at the beginning. Um, the beginning of the song as well as the end. You You have this kind of fade in from chaos and then fade out back into chaos Hmm. um two musical notes uh the mellotron which is uh, an early uh an early synthesizer it's an analog synthesizer you you've heard it in a million things but if you think of the distinctive sound from strawberry fields forever by the beatles that's the mellotron so there's one here being played by rick wakeman who's the kind of keyboard wizard for the band yes um, and this is an early, I believe, an early um, musical performance from him as well. And he's not a name I associate with David Bowie, and yet here he is. <laughs> but to me, the greatest moment of the whole song, there's a little pause, and then there's this rising alto saxophone figure that just blows me away. And I believe that's played by Tony Visconti, who is Bowie's producer for most of his classic albums, but not for this song. He produced most of the other songs on the self-titled or Space Oddity album, as it got later retitled. But he wouldn't do this one because he said it was a novelty song. <laughs> not like uh, not like the Laughing Gnome, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I guess he was the guy who was betting on David Bowie being known as that gnome guy. Yeah. <laughs> that's an alternate world yeah but i mean my goodness that saxophone solo is just just unbelievable i don't know if it's technically a great solo but man does it sound good in the context of the rest of the in the rest of the music and with, with pop music really that's what you're looking for for the most part you're not looking for virtuosity you're looking for something that matches what's going on in the song and it's, it's difficult to think of a song that has more matching pieces than um in space there's a lot of weird stuff a lot of stuff wouldn't seem to go together and yet bowie and um and his producer who i'm looking up now i've forgotten uh they they really make it work gus dudgeon who also produces rocket man by elton john which is a shameless ripoff of uh space oddity 
<laughs> awesome. All right. Well, uh, Bowie was almost always on trend, um, really right up to the end of his life. And, and indeed, Space Oddity comes out at a moment when the Western world is fairly obsessed with space travel. Its title, of course, makes reference to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was released the year before this. The single itself was released on the very timely date of July 11th, 1969. That's five days before Apollo 11 sent men to the moon for the first time. So people were listening to this for the first time as... Um, as, as astronauts were actually blasting off into space. How does Bowie's song play with those themes, and are the lyrics doing anything other than telling the story of this astronaut who gets lost in space? I mean, you, you mentioned that 2001 A Space Odyssey, that the title is, is drawn from that. And Bowie, in a, a 2012 interview, he was talking and explaining that how he was influenced by the film, because um, he went to see it in theaters multiple times, always stoned is what he said. And uh, it was not uncommon, of, by the way, I think I think during that that <laughs> that long scene toward the end with the, the, the psychedelic scene, I think uh, a lot of marijuana was smoked in theaters all over the world. Probably. <laughs> but uh, he, he says that one of the things that really drew him was the, the sense of isolation in the film. And he specifically says it was the sense of isolation I related to. And I think that's uh, important because. That sense of isolation, a major part of, of that film and in a lot of other science fiction in general, uh, is reproduced in, in Bowie's lyrics. He's suspended in the vast emptiness of space, his rocket ship reduced in significance to a tin can. And though he can see the earth below him, he can't touch it. There's nothing I can do, he says. The song's lyrics articulate this deep loneliness. Major Tom is up here all alone. His whole connection to back home and those he loves has to be mediated through a radio operator at ground control. So he has to ask someone else to tell his wife he loves her. And the response is also in the third person, she knows. And curiously, it's that response. She knows, not she loves you too. Uh, even here, there's this sense of some insurmountable distance mm. in the lyrics. As an aside, I mean, sci-fi would see a similar I love you, I know exchange a little later in The Empire Strikes Back, but it's a little more tender there. <laughs> Do you think that's a reference to the song? You know, I've never made that connection. I, I think it really could be. When I when I was listening to the song and paying attention to the lyrics, I'm like, that's, that's such a specific thing to say to I love you. You know, but, Harrison Ford improved that, so you'd have to ask him. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> but carrying on, I mean, even even... Uh, Major Tom's mediated connection back to Earth is severed, of course, when the circuits fail. And that trope of the malfunctioning spaceship is, is pretty common in science fiction. Um, obviously, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, when Hal starts to go crazy, uh, the British audience would also recognize it as a pretty fairly as a, as a pretty common trope in Doctor Who as well, which is um, it's six years into its work at this point, or a little over five years into its work at this point. So it's established itself as part of British culture. Um, but of course, for Major Tom, the circuit's going dead. It, I mean, I suppose if you took a very, very narrow reading, you could just say that he can't communicate with Earth. But obviously, more is going on than that. He used to be far above the world, but now his ship has drifted to the point that it's far above the moon. We presume he doesn't have control anymore of the whole ship and he's going to slowly die alone in space, uh, floating around his tin can as, as, he, as he asphyxiates. I think it's possible to, to read the song as Bowie's own personal struggle to connect uh, with the culture around him. He's faced a lot of failure as a singer and musician up to this point, And that sense of, uh, that sense of alienation is reflected, I think, in Major Tom's more literal isolation. Um, importantly, in, early on in the song, there's that line where, which I think articulates Bowie's driving desire to be famous, the idea that Major Tom has really made the grade and that the, pe that the papers want to know whose shirts he wears. Um, of course, Bowie hasn't really achieved any fame at this point, though it's something he's been desiring. Early on in one of his first bands, he writes to this rich businessman basically saying, you should make us famous like the Beatles and, and get yourself another million. It's just a random thing to send to a random person who was an appliance salesman, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Space Oddity, of course, gives Bowie his, 
first real success. And you could, you can, I think, imagine him feeling like he's really finally stepping through the door and feeling the sensation of floating. But uh, I mean, I, maybe we'll get into this for a while, but we feels like this is going to be his one hit wonder. And that's not quite what he wants either. When's his next hit? Is it changes? It can't, it can't be more than a couple years later. It is probably changes, but even that is interesting because changes, he had to sell the, the, the music to another artist to use who, who got it to chart before even Bowie himself recorded it. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I watched a documentary or two on Bowie before, before this episode because admittedly my knowledge of his bio is pretty minimal prior to today. So. Yeah. His, the man who sold the world had a similar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's weird to think about his fame as being tenuous, because to me, he was always... I'm, I'm not the world's biggest Bowie fan, but my whole life he's been like the emblem of the coolest guy in the world. And I, I feel like he never really lost that. He, he, that, that became him very early in the 70s, maybe, maybe in the hunky-dory changes era, maybe even here, I don't know. But even in the 90s, when he, he was making kind of dire music that nobody was listening to, he was still this emblem of coolness. Um, uh, it was like we hadn't caught up to him yet. Right, although I still don't know how many people like uh, those late 80s albums. <laughs> <laughs> the, the scene of him in Zoolander, where he, where he appears yes. out of nowhere to like, uh, to um, I forget what they call it, but he's like the referee for this model yes. contest. Like that's, it's David Bowie. Right, and that's the sort of person he was, right? He was just cool, and I, I feel like this song has a lot to do with that. This song about blasting off into outer space and never coming back. David, what yep. would you add to all that um, cultural background? I, all, all, all of that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I do think it's it's fascinating how how much he's building off of this idea of the tension of the countdown and the back and forth between the astronauts. Um, and yes, it is before the moon, uh, the moon launch, but it is after, um, other important missions. This isn't, you know, obviously it's not the first manned space flight. So True. he would have had, you know, they're not just in fiction, but also in real life, there are, um, kind of examples of those interchanges. And it's also worth remembering, um, that the way space flight looked at this time, they're not in a shuttle. They're on a tin can on the end of a, on the end of a missile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, yes, it's, it's hard for me not to look at, uh, footage or to go to, you know, Huntsville, Alabama and actually see the real things, um, and not think floating in a tin can. <laughs> Like this and, one was almost guaranteed to be a hit just because of when it came out, but oh yeah, it, it is also a great song, kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it manages to be simultaneously cynical about the way that spaceflight has become this sort of commercial thing um, or propagandistic thing, while at the same time preserving the idea that spaceflight can touch something that is, you know, transcendent and jubilant and and amazing, but also frightening. Right. It, man- it manages to get this whole range of feelings about spaceflight that have that have really dominated the kind of the the last quarter of the 20th century. And I mean, this one comes out at a pivotal moment for youth culture. The Beatles are still together, but they're not going to be together for very long. Um. Manson hasn't uh, hasn't destroyed the hippie dream, but he's going to do that before too long, right? Um, this is the summer of Woodstock, but Bowie's not involved with Woodstock. And this is a folk song. I mean, it's a folk song that's very dressed up, and there's a lot of a lot of production stuff going on. But at its heart, I mean, you could play this on an acoustic guitar, and it would work. And in fact, I think there's an acoustic guitar throughout the song. So mm-hmm. th- there's a there's a kind of hippie dream going on here that is being both celebrated and um, critiqued right yeah it's the hippie it's the hippie dream of transcendence and bowie sees the glory in that i mean that saxophone it's impossible to hear that and not not feel that transcendence but also you know the song ends um very darkly we don't know that he dies 
but we know that he loses track, he loses touch with the ground. So that hippie dream of transcendence has this danger that um, that I think Bowie sees before a lot of people see it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. The uh, the 1970s were his great decade. Almost all his greatest music was released during the 11 years from Space Oddity to Ashes to Ashes. I'm trying to think of what song would be considered one of his greats that wasn't from the 70s, besides Space Oddity. And it's the only one I can think of besides is is uh, Ashes to Ashes and Let's Dance, um, which was a which was I think his biggest hit ever in in America. But most of the songs you think of when you think of David Bowie are from the 70s. Um, but the 70s were also uh, not good to him in certain ways. Grubbs, what happens to Bowie between Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes? And how is the man singing the second song different from the man who sang the first song? Yeah. So Ashes to Ashes is coming after his... Um, well, the, the, towards the end of the 70s, he, sh- another shift in persona. Um, for the while, he is for a while he is the thin white duke. Um, Yikes! Which, yes, yes, which uh, apparently was sort of uh, dark and Nazi and on cocaine all the whole time. <laughs> Did you read about his diet in the 70s? Uh, yeah, red pepper and cocaine. Yeah, red uh, red bell peppers, cocaine, and milk. Yeah. Yeah, and and if you see pictures of him then, he looks like someone who's living off of yeah. <laughs> that. <laughs> you know, cocaine, pepper, milk smoothies. Um so so yeah, it, it was a it was it was kind of a it was a a a dark phase that he he realized was self-destructive and uh kind of had to go off for a while. And then, you know, and then and then come back later. But this is also after, you know, after after Ziggy Stardust. This is after he's, you know, he's been sort of, you know, what what did you call it? Like like dressed up folk with Space Oddity uh-huh. and then Glam and then whatever then White Duke is. You know, there's kind of a kraut rock sound, very experimental. I mean, it's yes. it, it's it sounds like David Bowie's mid 70s music. And the yeah. albums you're talking about are Station to Station, Low, and Heroes, right? Yes. And then, uh, yeah, so, so there's this uh, reputation that he's developing along the while. And if you read the, the lyrics of Ashes to Ashes, um, and, you know, the video, the video enhances this, um, but it's, it's, about, it's about reputation, um, do you remember the guy that's been in such an early song? Um, uh, I've heard a rumor from ground control. Oh no, don't say it's true. Right. So, so it's the, uh, you know, he gets that initial kind of reputation with space oddity at a time when, um, you could, you know, there, there was, there was a time when you could have rock and roll on kind of mainstream television <laughs> on a stage with a square host. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know, maybe there was this time in which David Bowie was, was cool, but not yet so completely transgressive as he would very quickly become. Um, and so there's this, uh, have you heard the rumors about that guy? They got a message from the action man. That's interesting too. Um, Action Man was the way G.I. Joe was marketed in the UK. Right. And there was an astronaut Action Man. Right. So, you know, is this this kind of the way that Major Tom had, you know, sort of been received as kind of of part of that that astronaut craze with the astronaut being, you know, this this hero that, you know, kids kids play and kids look up to. Um, but then have you heard, have you heard about what happened to Major Tom? Um, you know, it turns out that up in space, things haven't been going well. Um, he's happy, uh, but, you know, there are sordid details. <laughs> um, ashes to ashes, funk to funky. We know Major Tom's a junkie. Strung out in heaven's high, hitting an all-time low, which is an amazing chorus. Um, that's like, like that. 
that's as good as rock lyrics get in my opinion i just yeah. think that's that, i just think that's tremendous yeah it is phenomenal um so the kind of hippie it, you know if 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 space oddity is about hippie idealism this is about the crash and the burn that comes from the hollowness of a chemical fueled dream um and the, and he's someone who's felt it because you know the you know that the the drugs you know we talk about drug fueled vision um you know he was living one of those but you know also paying the cost of it so there's the rumor um and and this is something that I grew up hearing all the time too like hey do you know about this song that you're super familiar with it's all about drugs <laughs> So I don't know. Maybe I, I guess so, something like that was happening too. Hey, Major Tom, you know about that? It's really about drugs. Which I, I mean, I assume people must have thought even in '69, maybe especially mm-hmm. in '69. Yeah. Well, and as we talked about, I mean, it is kind of about drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the, but kids wouldn't have necessarily gotten that. Yeah, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I didn't know you that know, when I was a kid. I mean, the album this is released on is called Scary Monsters. Yeah, and Super. So, Pips. yes. And so, yeah. Um, but there's regret, uh, and you know, again, watch, you know, in the in the video, this is in this particular phase. Time and again, I tell myself I'll stay clean tonight. Um, at that particular point, uh, the image is of David Bowie in a padded cell. Um, the little green wheels are following me. No, not again. So it's, it's this, it's this wrestling with, um, with addiction, with, uh, what the drugs are doing to him, which has robbed him of agency. It reminds me again, uh, it, it reminds me of what we talked about before. He's up in a tin can, you know, uh, planet earth is blue and there's nothing I can do. There's a, a kind of echo there. I've never done good things. I've never done bad things. I never did anything out of the blue. Um, it's as if he has no agency anymore. I haven't really been good or bad. I haven't really been anything because it hasn't really been him. In a certain the, the vocal performance on that is just, I, I, I think, just just wrenching the way he the way he sings. I've never done good things, and you you look at this guy who has just spent a really remarkable decade making phenomenally successful music. And he says, I've never done good things, you know, yeah. the, the self-hatred in, in that line. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then the, the end of the song with the recitation of, of, of what's almost like a, like a nursery rhyme. My mother said to get things done and you better not mess with Major Tom. Um, it's the, it's the, it's the other side of having so actively courted, um, the edge, the transgressive, uh, that, you know, becoming just, uh, becoming a figure of, a figure of fright, a byword, as it were. Um, you know, uh, David Bowie wasn't wasn't this in my family, but there were definitely, you know, artists who were kind of the family byword. They were kind of the they were the reputation to, you know, or the representation to uh, you know us as kids of, you know, that transgressive pop culture out there that does awful things like this artist. And you might not know a single thing that they produced, but you know them as an image of all that's transgressive. And he's kind of become that. And it, at least from this song, as much as he constructed that and did that to himself, um, it's almost as if he's it, – well, it's, th- this song presents it as if um, he's become he's become trapped by all of that. It's very sad. What am I, is there anything, any other wrinkles that you want to tease out here? What would you have, Matthew? Um, I guess maybe I'd just draw, you know, renewed attention to the, the title or, or the line ashes to ashes. I mean, it's, 
it's taken from the Book of Common Prayer's burial liturgy. So we know right from the beginning that this is a song that's concerned with mortality and mourning, I think. Major Tom has crashed back to Earth, and now we're, we're seeing the effects of that crashing down. Um, as far as the actual you know, references to, to drug use and things here, it's interesting because Bowie's family apparently had a history of mental illness, mm-hmm. and this is something that he was apparently worried about quite a lot and it's it's disconcerting in a lot of ways to see how through his overuse of all of these drugs he really he makes that become a a self-fulfilling prophecy that he would have these these uh, these these issues yeah it really um makes the scene in the video where he's in the mental institution uh, really chilling when you realize his brother, whom he loved and adored, you know, was schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. This, I mean, this is a, a terrifying song. I'm really in in every way. It's it's it is. it's difficult to listen to in in a certain way. Like, I'm glad I didn't discover it when I was a kid, and I'm I'm really glad that I never saw the video when I was a kid because I think it would have scared the living hell out of me. <laughs> when when he sings I'm I mean, happy, hope yeah. you're happy too, and the people just pop up in the video, I, I never would have gotten to sleep after that. <laughs> I mean, the way that he presents himself as a figure of a figure of contempt and a figure of fun. You know, he's a just he's he's a he's a uh, uh oh, what what what's the what's the term Harlequin? Like that I'm yeah, Harlequin. Yeah, yeah. Um the Harlequinade. Uh, is is the way that he's dressed, which is, is a you know a figure of of mischief, of pratfalls, of you know comedy had at his expense. Um, but w- when you play in the Harlequinade, you surrender your personality. It goes underneath the makeup. Um, the Harlequin is not an individual character. It's a, it's a, it's a type character that is act, that is acted, um, forth in the, in a, in a kind of highly stylized and formalized art form. Right. So, you know, that, that's, that's what he chooses and that's kind of how he's seeing, how he, how he's presenting himself in that video is, you know, that, that, that's me now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just behind the makeup. In a certain kind of way, you could look at the '70s as, you know, David Bowie is behind which makeup now. Right. He changes names. I mean, not literally, but he changes personas three or four times. Yeah. And Aladdin Sane, yeah. Ziggy Stardust, the Thin White Duke. And given that, even when you when you peel back those layers and find David Bowie underneath. David Bowie is still another face. Underneath is David Jones. Right. Well, Ashes to Ashes couldn't sound more different um, from Space Oddity. I think the first two seconds of the song make that clear. Matthew, why don't you take a stab this time at describing how this song sounds? Sure. Before I do, though, I'm just going to correct myself on something I said earlier. I said that changes was bowie's song that had been recorded by someone else i was actually thinking of oh you pretty things Ah. which comes around at the same time and uh, so i wanted to correct that before someone else does um the music of ashes to ashes is is unique if i can put it that way and i'm no expert in this kind of thing but i'll give it a shot here so the music and i'm speaking just about the instruments here is is really kind of energetic in the song. It's got this popping bass, but the keyboard with its, I think it's a keyboard, with its synthetic warbling sound gives us our first indication right off the bat that things aren't quite normal in this song. Something strange is going on. And we hear that as well in in the vocal performances of this song. Uh, Some places, Bowie singing a little falsetto, some places he's high energy, in other places he's singing in a deliberately unenthusiastic way. I mean, the line, I'm happy, hope you're happy too, is, it's clear he's not. He's almost mumbling in places. And then there's these 
very unusual background vocals going on. While he's singing in some parts, there are overlapping vocals where Bowie's speaking the same words, but in an almost monotone voice. And that monotone voice is itself being echoed. The spoken words aren't matching up exactly to the sung words either. So they're crossing over each other and creating this eerie form of dissonance. Even creepier, I think, are the uh, the distorted voices, the mumbling, even a shriek, and, and all of these things going on in the background, um, including in the background of what would otherwise just be instrumental parts. To a large extent, these features are what I would imagine the musical equivalent of being hearing voices or having a bad trip on drugs. And then at the very end, uh, David pointed out that kind of sing-song nursery rhyme uh, warning about messing with Major Tom. That that whole thing in this creepy echo fading away into the synthetic keyboard, I mean, it's just, it's disturbing. Um, very interesting and complex musically, but it's, it's, it's very disturbing. It's, it's synthetic, right? I mean, I, I think that that's one thing that sets it apart. There's no folk song under this. This, this sounds like it was constructed in a studio and Bowie just kind of floated in over the top of it. You can't imagine him just sitting alone in his room playing it, Mm. even though it's such an isolating song. There were bits of it that reminded me a bit of The Cure. Yep. I think The Cure probably took a lot of influence from this. And maybe he took a little influence from The Cure because they'd already released a couple of singles by now. Yeah. Yeah, you've got that kind of gothic feel. Um, Mm -hmm. A phrase we haven't used yet is new wave. I think there's there's definitely, this is definitely new wave music, that that kind of weird synthesized post-punk. Um. He, he says funk to funky, and so it kind of cues you in to think about funk music. And I do think there is some, there's something kind of off-kilter funk in here. It's not exactly a funk song, but it's certainly adjacent. It's a, it's a creepy song. I, I mean, the, the, the production of the song makes it, in my opinion. It's well-written, but really it's what this sounds like. And especially the thing you're mentioning, Matthew, where he'll, he'll sing something, and then there's like a chorus of him mumbling those same words behind it so that you're not really sure what they're saying, um, and you're not sure which one is, you know, thematically, which one is in control of which. Is it the mumbler? who's telling the um, the singer what to sing or is he following the singer's lead it's very difficult to tell you think about his you think about his poor brother with schizophrenia mm-hmm. mm. well David you've already talked about this a little bit um, but the, the lyrics to the song make a lot of barely veiled references to him trying to kick cocaine and heroin and <laughs> this if he had died this of it it wouldn't be funny but it's kind of funny because we know he got clean. Um, he moved to Berlin in order to kick cocaine, and what happened instead was he got hooked on heroin. Um, <laughs> uh. Yeah. So anyway, what sorts of uh, what sorts of insights do the lyrics to the song offer into what it's like to be strung out in heaven's high, hitting an all time low? The um oh golly. Uh, Ain't got no money, ain't got no hair. Uh, I'm hoping to kick, but the planet, it's glowing. Um, it, w- on one side, it's, it's the recognition that, uh, what you're doing is destroying you. But also, it is, it is offering, it is offering something that he continues to, to come back to. Um, the I've loved all I've needed love sorted details following, um, you know, this, this idea that, you know, it's, it's been, it's been giving him something that he felt he needed. Um, even as he knows very self-consciously that it's wrecking him. Um, I have no idea what the little green wheels are, but that is an incredibly paranoid thing to say. Um, 
time and again, I tell myself I'll stay clean tonight, but the little green wheels are following me. Oh, no, not again. A Genius.com like annotation, David, suggests that they are rolled up dollar bills used to snort cocaine. I don't know if there that's you true go. or not. That might make sense, but I don't know that you would hear rolled up dollar bills, but the, the sense of the sound of wheels... Um, well, it, it, little I mean, greens invokes like aliens, right? And then also the yeah. wheels inside of wheels in the book of Ezekiel. So I, I mean, I, I think there's something more sinister than just rolled up dollar bills going on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the understanding of wheels of in wheels in the uh, chariot of the gods kind of sense. Mm, yeah. Well, also in the vid in the uh, in the video, this is one of the interludes where he's he's in the padded cell. Um, where the only the only sense of, of of what one would have coming into or out of the cell is the sounds heard from the hall. Um, you know, here come here come here comes the nurse again with the injection. Here come I hear the wheels of the of the tray. You know, um, I, I I don't know maybe that's just inventing things, but in any event, um, you can you can see the the way that he has this. Um, paranoiac anxiety about his own desire and the fact that he knows that he's not going to be able to resist it um, and is terrified of it. Um, uh, and then where I already mentioned the never done good things, never good bad things, never did anything. Um, the, sen- the sense in which he, he feels he's got no agency. Uh, and then at the end, uh, my mom, uh, my mother said to get things done, you better not mess with Major Tom. Um, the recognition that that uh, having become a byword and a kind of uh, uh, oh, what's the what's the expression? A a, a proverb, a uh, a warning, <laughs> a cautionary tale. That's what I'm looking for. Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks who uh, have struggled with this kind of uh this kind of addiction um are uh are are aware of the ways in which they have become the thing that others warn their children about or this is what my mother warned me about um to to be kind of living living out that is uh yeah it, it, the, the, the whole the whole the whole thing the whole thing is horrifying you you cannot you cannot imagine from this that you know the the drugs are in are, are in some way going to bring some something kind of spiritual or mystical or genuinely valuable or beautiful or open your mind or anything not not in this song in in space oddity you can right yeah there's that possibility in space oddity but not here Major Tom came back and the drugs wrecked him. And now he's he's nothing but, like I said, a caution a cautionary tale. Anything to add to that, Matthew? Uh, I don't think I would add anything. I think David covered it pretty well. I wanted to talk about these two songs because I think they demonstrate, maybe better than any other pop cultural artifact, what happens to Western society in the nineteen seventies. What do you guys think? Uh, what does the transformation of Major Tom from heroic hippie astronaut to strung out junkie reveal about popular culture at the end of the 20th century? Well, I mean, at the end of the 1960s, you definitely do have that kind of heroic enthusiasm about space with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And I mean, there had been a number of other things in the 60s that you could be optimistic about. There was the the kind of utopian sentiment of the counterculture of the 60s, um, that rallying cry to make love, not war. And I think they would have felt that they'd seen some successes towards that kind of ideal. Um, the end of segregation in the States or the, the rise of popular opinion against the Vietnam War, that could be seen as grounds for optimism. There was a better world waiting around the corner. But I mean, the 70s really destroys this, uh, this sense of idealism. Um, if Major Tom was this kind of heroic hippie astronaut flying off into space, as you say, we see that hero- heroism and, and optimism crashing back down to earth and ashes to ashes. 
there's of course the wider culture you have the renewed sense of urgency uh, in the the new cold war um you've had an american president that's been forced out of office in scandal and uh so even when bowie in the persona of ziggy stardust in the 70s was telling people the world would end in five years i don't think it would have been that big of a stretch for a lot of people to believe him and uh at the same time, I mean, the drug culture, which I think we associate with the 60s, it really intensified in the 70s with drugs becoming increasingly associated with the glamorous lifestyle in, in pop culture and in contemporary media. I mean, contemporary media of the 70s was suggesting that cocaine wasn't addictive, for example, yeah. <laughs> which is just ludicrous. I wonder what Bowie thinks about that. Yeah. So you do see, of course, this the shift is major Tom moves from here to junkie. And I think the lesson that, that people would draw from this or Bowie is drawing from this is that there are no heroes. Society's letting you down. It's going to let you down. And th there really is this, this doom and gloom pessimism that's going on in, in the seventies as a result in, in all sorts of ways. I think that shows up in, in some pop culture of the day. I mean, you've got this, this idea of a galactic empire as this universal menace in star Wars. Um, but but even with that kind of pessimism, I think there's a desire not to always be stuck in it. I could be wrong in this, but I think there's some escapism going on. I mean, you might not find heroes in real life, but you're going to find them on the big screen. You you do have the Galactic Empire, but you've got a Luke Skywalker and a Han Solo and a Princess Leia to deal with it. You've got uh, the Superman movies coming out at this period. But again, I think that, that has more to do with escapism from the problems of this era than belief in real heroes. And I think as time goes on, we start to see even fictional heroes become uh, problematized, if you want to use the term. What what other kinds of things were you thinking of, Michael, with this question? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think you're hitting on a lot of it. This this notion that the the world the hippies had dreamed up becomes very quickly this world of abject hedonism. And it happened before the 70s. So I, I think of, so it all begins with, it doesn't all begin, but marijuana was was the, the popular drug in the late 60s, marijuana and acid. And they this have a reputation, or rightly or wrongly, as being kind of light drugs, right? But I mean, you've got Bowie <laughs> snorting cocaine and shooting heroin, and there's nothing light about that, you know? And and that happened well before the 70s. John Lennon's famously on um, heroin during the Abbey Road and Let It Be sessions as well. So, so I mean, it, it, it's already there, but I think by the time you get to the end of the 70s, you get this whole culture, at least from my outside perspective, this whole culture just completely burned out. Um, the the oil the oil crisis uh, what you mentioned Watergate just this notion that America had had and into a you know to to a lesser extent the rest of the Western world had just kind of run out of gas um, and and the the eighties kind of pick back up in a in a way that I don't think is is necessarily virtuous but I'm I'm fascinated with this period right here at the end of the seventies when um, when the sheen is off. And so you can you can make a song like Ashes to Ashes and it'll be a big hit because it it's touching on something that whether you're strung out on heroin or not, you just kind of understand that your culture has hit an all time low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I imagine we can we can kind of relate to in 2021. This is. I mean, I, I'm very limited in terms of uh, my kind of cult, pop cultural engagement in in the, the the time period that we're looking at. But it does seem that there's there's a kind of divide between the popular culture um, going up, you know, in, even into the middle of the '60s and then the late '60s and through the '70s, where the those who are sort of the inner the entertainers the musicians the actors um they might have a life that's pretty hedonistic and debauched but it wasn't necessarily all done in public um you know you you might have uh, uh an actor 
who who lives you know a life that's you know pretty uh, pretty scandalous but on on screen play a very earnest hero um by the time you come into the sort of the late 60s and then definitely through the 70s uh the it's it's it seems as if that that sort of hedonistic life which had kind of probably always been there to some degree um became more and more part of the public persona and even part of of the part of the the film part of the story um to where being this kind of public transgressive wreck of a person was being the celebrity that wasn't the stuff that the celebrity covered up it's the thing that they did to be famous um you know and there's something like that when you get into the i guess what is it the late 90s early 2000s when everybody was leaking a sex tape um it, and then and then and then being a celebrity uh becomes not you know being able to enjoy those those things that are forbidden for the the mainstream um you know being able to kind of enjoy that in private while maintaining this public facade it becomes part of the facade um I mean, if you read some of the some of the comments that that Bowie was making um, about his own sexuality um, through the 70s, and then read his comments later, that uh, he was sometimes uh, he was speaking and sometimes behaving in ways that were more transgressive than he was actually really in that 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 really def- reflected his desires because he was cultivating this this persona. But the persona was eating him. Yeah, the Thin White Duke's a great example of that, right? He starts playing around with Nazism yep. and the occult, and before yep. you know it, he's accidentally giving Nazi salutes in Victoria Station. Yeah, like <laughs> you, you gotta find you gotta find a different persona, my dude. <laughs> Well, what else would you guys uh, point our listeners' attention to on the way out of the capsule? Um, a couple things, and I, I don't know if I'm going to steal anybody's thunder on this, but uh, the astronaut Chris Hadfield's lovely uh, per- perform acoustic performance of Space Oddity on the space station um, is just wonderful. If you if you haven't seen that, him just sort of like floating through the air, strumming his guitar, um, that that's lovely. Um, another thing that it, that uh, coming back to Space Oddity today reminded me of was that uh, Nixon had an alternate speech written for uh, Apollo 11 if it hadn't gone well. If, if, if there'd been a disaster, uh, yeah, no, he, he actually, uh, he had a speech written for if, if there had been a disaster, if major Tom had not come home, <laughs> essentially, well, I guess you would have um, to. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, in, it, in ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations in modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Like, incredibly tragic slash but also aspirational stuff it's it's really interesting to kind of be listening to space oddity and then looking at uh what literally would have been said if things had gone otherwise just a few days later anyway matthew um i was going to mention the uh the version of space oddity by chris hadfield um Canadian astronaut, after all. So. Oh, well, I should have left that to you. But, uh, no, 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 I don't have anything else to say, other than that it was 
I mean, it does have some lyrical changes, but Bowie himself approved them and apparently really liked Hatfield's version. So it's it's not like a it's not just a cheap cover. It's 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 well done. Um, I think it might be worth uh, encouraging people if they've never seen the the movie of Apollo 13. If you want to get a sense of what it would be like to be stuck in a, a spaceship that's malfunctioning, um, that gives you kind of that sense of horror a little bit, but but also the ability to maybe to to come through, of course, as, as they do. Finally, I might just say, Michael, you should go watch The Labyrinth. It's it's worth watching. Oh, so. <laughs> I know my wife likes it, although I think she might be afraid of it. It could be both. The question is, which of these songs do you like better? Personally? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'd much be more likely to want to listen to Space Oddity. Uh, Ashes to Ashes says some very interesting and important things, but uh, if I was going to just have the music playing in my own home, probably Space Oddity. What about you, Krabs? Yeah, same. I have kids at home. Uh, I, I, I would much rather unpack Space Oddity. Fair. And I don't have kids, and I prefer Ashes to Ashes. But, uh, you know... I'm a dark no, guy. No, I did listen to Ashes to Ashes. I mean, I've listened to it, you know, several dozen times uh, prepping for this. Um, just, I really, really enjoyed it. But, um, I mean, I've, I've, listened, I've heard Space Oddity my entire life. Um, it's it's a song that it's it's maybe a little bit difficult to, to listen to um, carefully. Because it's so familiar. To that, for that reason, I made a point of not watching either of the music videos for these songs. I might do that after this episode now, but uh, I wanted to to really just think about the music and what it said. And uh, yeah, but you guys pointed out there's some interesting things, especially in the Ashes to Ashes video. So I'm I'm curious to watch that one. Just don't watch it. Uh late at night with the lights off that's a that's a pretty disturbing <laughs> video in my opinion like i said if i'd seen it when i was a kid i probably never would have gotten over it i would probably still be afraid of david bowie all right well uh thanks for wandering through uh major tom's catalog with me i should note there's a third song called hallow spaceman which comes out in the 90s and kind of puts the major tom story to bed but I didn't listen to that song, and it didn't really fit in with what I wanted to say, so we didn't talk about it here. But if you have thoughts on that, or uh, either of the first two Major Tom songs, or David Bowie, or anything else, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Matthew, you're hosting your first episode next week. What are we talking about? Yeah, our, our next episode is going to come out on February 16th, which happens to be Philip Melanchthon's birthday. So I thought it would be a good day to discuss the Augsburg Confession, which he wrote. And that's kind of the principal confession of the Lutheran Reformation. I will try to contain myself when we talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Great. Well, uh, until next time, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For David Grubbs, for Matthew Block, and for the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.